from the Shiroku. <coughs> Rinzai's one stroke. The pointer. When Buddha comes, hit it. When the demon comes, hit it. With the principle, 30 blows. Without the principle, 30 blows. Do you mistakenly regard this as due to some kind of bitterness? Or is this not distinguishing what is right? Try to see if you can say it. Main case. <clears throat> Attention! Master Rinzai asked the administrator monk, Where have you been? The monk said, I've come back from selling brown rice in the province. Rinzai asked, Did you sell it all? The monk replied, Yes, it is all sold. Rinzai then drew a line with his staff in the sand and said, Did you sell this? Thereupon the monk, the monk shouted, At this, Rinzai hit it. Later on, the Tenzo, the head cook, came by, and Rinzai told him about the previous incident. The head cook remarked, The administrator monk did not understand your intent, teacher. Rinzai retorted, How about you? The Tenzo bowed low. Rinzai hit him too. The verse. Rinzai's total activity, excellent quality. The tip of his staff has the eye to distinguish autumn fur. Sweeping away fox and hare, his style is precipitous. Lightning and fire, scorch, transforming fish to dragons, life-giving soul, death-giving soul. Leaning against heaven, illuminating the snow. More sharply than hair-blown sword, evenly performing the decree, distinguishing delicate flavors. Who meets this painful spot utterly? So, last week, last day show, Focus on how quickly and how habitually we create extras. And then use them to build mental constructs that keep us imprisoned in an imagined reality. And how quickly we can move from what is simple and constantly flowing to entanglements and stagnation. And of course, as in the case of stagnant water, very quickly it becomes breeding ground for bacteria and disease. We also become a breeding ground for unnecessary suffering. Very quickly. Suffering mental, emotional dis-ease in the form of restlessness, dissatisfaction, unease, 
and when stagnant, we provide the perfect incubator for the development of the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance. This is how they are born. And whether or not we, we get stuck doesn't really matter, right? Because maybe the sad irony of this is that although we may feel stuck, we may feel stuck at times, there is no such thing as being stuck. Because flow is not an option. It's reality. It's, it's reality that does not change based on our feelings. Although we may feel that there is such thing as a fixed self that needs to be protected and needs to be defended, it's just an illusion. Impermanence is our true reality. There is no other option. As it is, the state of human consciousness is still in the process of spiritual development. And because of that, many people still obey a false impulse, or false impulses, and feed the three poisons habitually. And then some, some have learned and taught how to obey a true impulse how to get in touch with the true impulse first, and then to obey that, and then to live and die peacefully without creating conflicts and complications. It's a great task, isn't it? And all those great masters we, we bring up here in koans or we read about, they devoted their, their entire lives to the sole purpose of this, of being the torch, that shines light on the truth, on things as they are. That's all. The truth, original self, suchness, thusness, or whatever else, whatever, whatever name we have assigned to it, doesn't really matter. It comes down to this, just this. And then they did that through their teachings, seamlessly through their everyday affairs. And they all pointed, all these masters pointed at the same vastness, same thusness, in very unique ways, very different ways. I think sometimes we, because we have a tendency to get caught up in differences, we may get caught up in that too, and maybe prefer one over another, one style over another. And when we do, we get caught up in the finger that is pointing at the moon. I prefer a different pointer. And we end up living and dying within that finger, never seeing the moon, never experiencing. Realization. 
Tokusan, for example, used to hit his disciples with a stick. Very fierce teacher. Gute silently raised one finger. And when he died, he said, I, have never, I haven't yet exhausted it. I've used this one finger my entire life and have not yet exhausted it. Luzu would turn around and face the wall whenever anyone would come to see him. Just turn around and face the wall. Umon used terse and precipitous language. Joshu used profound and kind words. And Rinzai would often shout. And you know, their actions and the words came out of being intimately aligned with reality. And they also had a profound understanding of what it feels like to struggle and to be and to drown in the sea of yes and no, because they've been there. They, they were not born, realized. Well, maybe we should say they were born, realized, then messed it up, and then realized again. They knew very well what it feels like to break through the barrier of yes and no, of in and out, of delusion and realization. And then they acted the way they acted from a place of equanimity. The point was not to create issues. Rinzai's journey to realization was very interesting in that because he was struggling at some point, even gave up. It says this, from the beginning of his residence at Obakus, Obakus Monastery, that was his teacher, Rinzai's performance of his duties was exemplary. And at the time, at that time, Bokushu served as a head monk. So after about three, four years, Bokushu asked him, how long have you been here? Rinzai said, about three years. Bokushi said, have you gone for an interview with the master or not? Rinzai said, I haven't done so. I don't know what to ask him. Bokushi said, why not ask him what is the essential meaning of Buddhism? That's a good question. So Rinzai said, okay, went into Obaku, began to ask the question. Before he could finish his question, Obaku struck him with a stick. Rinzai went out. Then Bokshu asked him, what happened when you asked the question? Rinzai said, before I could finish my question, it hit me. I don't understand. Bokshu said, you should go back and ask again. So Rinzai said, okay, I'll go back. He goes in. Same thing happens. Three times. Three times, exact same thing. Before he could finish his question, 
he got struck. The reason I reveal this to Bob is you're saying, before you urged me to ask about the Dharma, but all I got was beating. Because of, now this is what he thought, because of evil karmic hindrances, I am not able to comprehend the essential mystery. So he actually thought that he's unable to get it because of his karma, because of his past. Maybe he thought, maybe not in this lifetime. Maybe I have to reincarnate many, many times before I can realize. So obviously he was holding on to something at that point. And he said, so today I'm going to leave. Bokushi said, if you're going to leave, you must say goodbye to the master. Rizai bowed and went off. Bokushi then went to Obako and said, the monk who asked you the questions, although he's young, he's very extraordinary. If he comes to say goodbye to you, please give him appropriate instruction. Later, he'll become a great tree under which everyone on earth will find refreshing shade. It's pretty discerning of Bhakti to see that, isn't it? To see the potential. To see the potential within Rinzai and then having Rinzai not seeing the potential in himself. So Bhakti believed in Rinzai while Rinzai did not believe in himself. And often that's that's very much the case with, uh, in relationship between students and teachers. The teachers believe in the student, but the student does not believe in himself or herself, and therefore struggles a lot, and sometimes quits. It's very relevant, this story. So the next day, when Rinzai came to say goodbye to Obaku, he said, you don't need to go somewhere else. Just go over to Gawan Monastery and practice with Dayu. He will explain it to you. So Rizai did that. So he actually, he, there was something in him that did trust. Although he gave up, he didn't completely give up. So he goes to Dayut, and Dayut asked, where have you come from? Rinzai said, from Obaku. Dayut says, what did Obaku say? Rinzai said, three times I asked him about the essential doctrine, and three times I got hit. I don't know if I made some error or not. Dayut said, Obaku has all grandmotherly affection, and endure all this difficulty for your sake. And here you are asking whether you've made some error or not. Upon hearing these words, Rinzai was awakened. He had to go somewhere else to realize. So Rinzai then said, actually, Obaku's Dharma is not so great. Actually, Obaku's Dharma is not so great. Why would he say that? Was he ridiculing Obaku? Was he, did he feel 
better than Obaku. So Dayu grabbed him and said, why you little bedwetter? You just came to me and said you don't understand, but now you say there is not so much to Obaku's teaching. What do you see? Speak, speak. Rinzai then hit Dayu on his side three times. Dayu let him go saying, your teacher is Obaku, I've got nothing to do with you. What a great spirit. How alive is it? Think about it. So then Rizai left Ayu, returned to Obaku. Obaku saw him and said, This fellow who's coming and going, how could he ever stop? Rinzai said, only through grandmotherly concern, only through grandmotherly concern. Rinzai then bowed and stood in front of Obaku. Obaku said, who has gone and returned? Rinzai said, yesterday I received the master's compassionate instruction. Today, I went and practiced at Dayus. Obaku said, what did Dayus say? Rinzai then recounted the meeting with Dayu. Obaku said, that old fellow Dayu talks too much. Next time I see him, I'll give him his painful blow. Rinzai said, why wait until later? Here's a painful blow right now. Rinzai then hit Obaku. Why wait? Obaku yelled, this crazy fellow has come here and grabbed the tiger's whiskers. Rinzai shouted. Obaku then yelled to his attendant, Take this crazy man to the Zendo. This crazy man is still teaching. Still alive. If we can only listen, look, experience. There's so much life in their spirit. So much flow. The point of the discourse says, when Buddha comes, hit him. When a demon comes, hit him. With the principle, 30 blows. Without the principle, 30 blows. You get it. You don't get it. You say you get it, 30 blows. You say, I don't get it, I don't know, 30 blows. Wake up. Wake up from knowing, wake up from not knowing. Waking up is waking up, period. And going to sleep is going to sleep. What you dream doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because you're asleep. You can have great dreams. You can have nightmares. Either way, we have to wake up. And when we wake up, we realize it's just a dream. I, dream of I dreamt of realization. I dreamt of delusion. 
I dreamt of knowing, I dreamt of not knowing. When Buddha comes, hit him. Wake him up. Kill him. When demon comes, hit him too. And it says, without the principle, with the principle, it doesn't matter. Now, if you think that this is due to some kind of bitterness, it is saying, or you think it's not distinguishing what is right, try to see if you can say anything. If you think you, you, think you have arrived somewhere, you get 30 blows. If you think that you are lost, 30 blows. Both, no, both often, not knowing and not knowing, are conceptual. And both can easily become a cesspool for illusion to fester. So Rinzai hits you hard, wakes you up, wakes us up, from the depth of dreamland. Yes, he is abrupt and he is in our face. But is there malice in his action? And this is the question that the pointer brings up. Are we offended? Are we taking it personally? In the Rinzai Loku, there's a dialogue where a monk asks Rinzai, What are Buddha and Mother? Rinzai said, A moment of doubt in your heart is Mother. A moment of doubt. One split second of doubt is the beginning of falling asleep. And he said, but if you can grasp that the 10,000 things are unborn and that the heart, the heart is like an elusive fantasy, that not even a speck of dust exists. Everywhere is purity. This is Buddha. Everywhere is purity. This is Buddha. It may be said that Buddha and Mara are present when pure and tainted, with pure and stated states, right? Yet, yet, he says, as I see it, there is no Buddha, no living being, no past, no present. Those who can realize this do so at once, without training or testimonial, without gain or loss. There is no other Dharma, he says. This is all that I teach. Now he says, a moment of doubt is Mara, right? He said that because moments of doubts, a moment of doubt is a moment of stagnation. And an entry point to complications. And as long as we are willing to merge with the inevitable flow, it is inevitable. And as long as we are willing to blend, to merge with it. The doubts have no chance to accumulate. Constantly moving. 
How can dust settle? On what? On who? There is neither Buddha nor Mother. And then he ends by saying, there is no other Dharma. This, capital letters, this, is all that I teach. What is this? You know, in Jukai, we, we say, well, the last, uh, the more recent version of our Jukai precepts, at the end we say, at the end of each one, we ask, will you maintain this? And it may seem that, you know, we ask specifically about this at recent. But really what this question is asking us is, will, you, will we maintain this, the aliveness of this, as is? Through the precepts, yes. Using the precept to maintain this. It's not the precept that has to be maintained. This has to be maintained. Carefully, meticulously. Wakefulness has to be maintained. We also chant in the Hot Sutra, this is the truth, not a lie. This is the truth. Inviolably the truth. <coughs> it's indestructible. And it's not a concept. So the dialogue in this koan begins with what seems like a simple and mundane question by Rinzai. Now in this, back in those days, monasteries would grow vegetables or rice or whatever, and then they would go and sell it to be able to support themselves. So of course they would use some of what they grow for their own consumption, and then the rest to make some money to buy things that are needed for the monastery. So the administrative monk came back from the market after selling some, taking some of the brown rice to sell. And Rizai asked him, where have you come from? And the monk said, I went to the market to sell brown rice. Simple question, simple answer, right? It's truthful. But Rizai doesn't stop there. He keeps going. And he asked another very interesting question. Did you sell it all? Why would he ask this? Is it out of concern to the balance sheet of the monastery finances? Was it about the administrator's salesmanship skills? Maybe I should send somebody else to sell? Or was there something else? You know, often, and we should know that, often conversations with, with Zen teachers are, not, are often not what they seem. They're often not what they seem. Remember, these people devoted their lives to keeping realization flowing.
So conversations that may seem like conversations in the weeds, everyday affairs, go much deeper. And often they go unnoticed, so conversation ends without realization, without awakening, without seeing. In Zen training, you know, teacher is always watching everything. Not just how we communicate in Dokusan. How we move, how we sit down, how we speak, how caught up we are. how stingy we are, and how generous we are, with everything. How quickly are we willing to drop down everything and attend to what's needed? And whether or not we want somebody to see what we do. Whether or not we need some recognition It is in everyday affairs because it is constantly alive. But this doesn't mean we have to worry about it and feel like we are under magnifying glass. The more we worry about it, the less genuine it becomes, the more clunky it is. So on the contrary, the, the less we worry about it, the more natural we are, the more genuine we are with our actions. With practice, obviously, not just because everybody can say I'm genuinely doing what I'm doing. And then you look at what they leave behind, and there's a lot of suffering. It's a different kind of being genuine. It's being truthful to who we are, and obeying true impulses. So the monk answers by saying, yes, I sold it all. Another simple question, simple answer, right? Did you sell it all? I sold it all. So then Rinzai drew a line with his staff in the sand and asked another what seems to be an odd question. Did you sell this? And at this point, at this point, this monk realized this is not just an ordinary conversation. There's something else going on here. I better wake up for it. I already missed a couple of questions. What do I do with that? How do I answer this? 
deep question that goes to the root of our existence. Did you sell this? Is it for sale? Is everything for sale? And it's a question that can cut through the chatter, the inner chatter, constant inner chatter, and on the spot wakes you up. If we listen. can stop the chatter on its tracks. All is revealed and nothing is missing. Is this for sale? And if it is, who is going to buy it? And who is selling? I remember when I moved to this country about 26 years ago, I remember listening to some radio commercials and I was astonished to, to hear how everything is being advertised. Everything is for sale. Everything is about a bottom line. Everything. Everything becomes a commodity. Everything has a monetary value, including human beings. From the moment we are born until the moment we die, we are seen as human commodity and a potential target for revenue. Either we are selling something to somebody or are buying something from somebody. And we play along. Right? And society is so obsessed with merchandising and quantifying. It's very easy to lose sight of inherent value. To lose sight, to lose touch with humanity and forget where is true home. Forget that which can never be sold or bought. And forget that that which can never be sold or bought is inherent in all things, even the ones that are sold and bought. And that's sad. It's sad because we can spend an entire lifetime in this madness without opening the eyes and seeing that a lot is lost in this. We forget what is true home and from there it's so easy to use and abuse our planet and each other. Drilling, fracking, discarding, false advertisement, psychological-based marketing. It's all good. All works. Whatever it takes to make a profit. Who cares? Look at the bottom line. Who cares? Sell it all. I mean, we're born into this, you know, we're born into this kind of mindset, into this mentality. We're born into it, we don't have to play along. We don't have to obey this madness. We can open the eye that sees inherent preciousness, 
inherent preciousness. We can see it in the dust we wipe off the shelf, the garbage we put out at the curb, or maybe broken pieces of glass we pick up off the floor, put in the garbage can. And the beautiful thing about recognizing inherent preciousness is that we begin to comprehend what it means to show up for our lives and appreciate all its aspects. We begin to understand what Dogen meant when he said, life is swiftly passing by, opportunities are lost. We may end up, we may end up squandering our lives. That's a possibility. We may be doing it without even being aware. I mean, you know, we, we do live in this society and of course, as part of basic functioning, we always find ourselves on the plane of exchanging commodities in one way or another. But the question is, are we functioning in, in a one-dimensional plane? Can we, be, can we become aware of a multifaceted dimension while buying and selling? While in the midst of daily activities? Every interaction, every interaction, is an opportunity to get beyond the limited aspects of our, of our invention, maybe. And it's limited. And then bring different kind of energy into that. Right? It means to transcend the role of a customer or a merchant and to experience unity while dealing with multiplicity. There's a saying that goes like this. It's easy to cut one to two. It's a lot more difficult to cut two to one. And this is what we practice. Cutting many into one. What kind of a soul is it that cuts many to one? Anybody can cut one, two, fragments. I think some people do it naturally. Some people are able to see beyond the exchange, to see the person, to see humanity, to experience affinity with someone who is there to provide service. To sell an item. But it, is it the way we live our lives? And for this we need to practice. For this to become the way we live our lives, we need to practice. Otherwise it may or may not happen. We may get caught up, we may not get caught up. to get coffee uh, the other day and I remember the, the cashier was telling another employee there 
I've been here for about five hours and I have not encountered one nasty customer yet. And they were so happy. Like so unusual. No nasty customers today. And the other guy said, well, this must be your lucky day. Why, why is it? Why do we become like that? I'm a customer. I demand service. You better give me service. This person on the other side of the counter, is he or she different than me? Can I see that? Can I relate to that? Can I awaken to that? While handing over the $5 bill and then getting whatever it is we're getting. This is non-negotiable. Whether we get it or not, this, again, capital letters, this, it's non-negotiable. It is present whether or not we are aware of it. And it is fully accessible whether or not we access it. The more we recognize its presence and generously share it with the world, the more abundant it is. When we get distracted by the inner chatter and are not aware of how abundant life is, and how we become protective, fearful, and stingy, then it is accessible, but we're not accessing it. And, and it is actually at that time, we, we feel as if it is lacking. There is abundance, but for us, it seems as if it's lacking, as if it is passing us by. Now, Jesus said that in different words. He said, to those who have more, to those who have more shall be given from those who have not, even what they have will be taken away from them. If we recognize it and we share it, it's abundant. Everybody gets it. Everybody has it. If we don't and we are stingy, then we steal from ourselves. So later on, in this koan, the Tenzo, the head cook, happened to come by and means I told him about the story, about the incident. So the Tenzo remarked, the administrator monk did not understand your intent, teacher. And the footnote to that says, the mouth is the door of calamity. Isn't that true? The mouth is the door of calamity. So Rinzai retorted, well, how about you? You say he did not understand. Do you get it? His foot is mouth. So the Tenzo bowed. Well, the other guy shouted, well, maybe I should bow. Rinzai hit him too. Everybody gets the same treatment. Everybody. As it says in the, 
in the verse, evenly performing the decree, evenly performing the decree. Nobody is immune. He says, it says distinguishing delicate flavors. That's how he distinguishes delicate flavors. And actually the delicate flavors arise by themselves because they're inherent. But first we must kill the extra or realize that we make up or we invent the extra that we get called up in. And then delicate flavors are brought to life and are shared with everybody. And, and with Rinza, it seems that you are as if you are doomed if you do and doomed if you don't. It doesn't matter what you do. And it seems harsh to us. We don't, we don't do this. Zen these days doesn't use these methods. Or we use these methods in other ways. More subtly. But this is just Rinzai's compassionate way of not allowing us to settle down and build a house on concepts or with concepts. Never stop. What he's doing is what the Diamond Sutra says by pointing at dwelling nowhere, raise the body-mind. Dwelling nowhere, raise the body-mind. Even when feeling stagnant, there is no such thing as stagnation. Even when feeling stuck, there is still flow. The verse says, Rinzai's total activity, excellent quality. And it says some other things. And the last line, the last line is, is most important for us. Who meets this painful spot utterly? Because you know, most of the verses focus on Rinzai's ability to shake, up, shake us up, or his disciples, in this case, right? And the last line, turns the spotlight from him to us. And it's asking, are we willing to meet the pain and face the challenges that come with it? Are we willing to turn towards where it hurts? In the miscellaneous koans, there's a line that asks, how will you receive the blow of my stick? How do we receive the blows of life? From where? From this or from something else? And this is our challenge. This is the task of practice moment by moment, to learn to deal with the blows of life from this. 